Great. Well, hey, welcome River West Church. It's great to see you today. Welcome to church. Will you please pull out your Bible and we'll get ready to get in the Word. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Ushers are coming. We'd love to give you a Bible. You can take that home. It's our gift to you. And we're getting back into 1 John, this amazing letter we're studying. We've made it all the way to chapter 4. And it's amazing to be where we are. Incredible book. I have loved hearing the stories from so many of you of how 1 John is impacting your life, impacting your faith. I've heard stories of spiritual breakthrough, seeing things you've never seen before about the gospel, about Christ, about the plan of God. It's been encouraging. Thank you for sharing those stories with me. I've heard stories about people being freed from, from sin that had held them in bondage for years, finally being set free from something. I've heard stories from you about forgiveness and reconciliation in relationships that are profound and amazing. And it's so encouraging to hear how God is using his word to impact our church and our relationships with each other. Thank you for sharing those. And thank you for wrestling with the text. So I've also heard stories of people who have been wrestling with John. You're reading along, you're listening, you show up on Sunday and you've studied the text and you've wrestled with the text, right? You show up on Sunday and you've studied the text and you've wrestled with the text and you're struggling and you're thinking and sometimes John's challenging you, right? And that's a good thing to be challenged. A couple of Sundays ago, I, was got, I got done with the sermon and the service and there was a gentleman waiting to talk to me and he had a look like he was really struggling with something. And we talked for a bit and he said, I got to be honest with you, I'm wrestling with how much John seems to emphasize when he's talking about love, he talks so much only about our love for one another in the church. But I feel like, but I feel like I, shouldn't we be talking about how we love people outside of the church? And John seems to be so focused on that. And, it, you know, what, what's the deal with that? And we talked about it and he went home and he sent me an email later. I got other emails from people too about that. This gentleman sent me an email and he said, you know, I went back and I read through 1 John and you know what's amazing? Not one time in this letter of love does John say anything about how we love people outside of the church. That's really odd, isn't it? And you know what? He's right. And it's not just John. If you actually read the New Testament, one of the things you'll notice is that there's overwhelming emphasis placed on how we love one another. It's not that we're not supposed to love the world. We're not supposed to seclude ourselves or create a Christian ghetto or a bubble or anything. It's not that at all. It's just that the New Testament writers are emphasizing, we've got to get good at this. This is really hard. We have to practice. We have to work. We have to learn how to love one another. Why? Why, why would that be the emphasis of the New Testament? I'll tell you why. I think John has tapped into something that he learned from Jesus, and it's, and it's this. The way that people become convinced of the love of God is when they see that love being lived out in beautiful ways in a community. And then they, then they, then they pay attention, and then love spreads to them, and, and others are brought in, and John, John knew this. People get convinced of the love of God through beautiful communities where the gospel is alive and people are learning how to love one another. Suddenly, love spreads. 
Amazing. I can explain away extraordinarily loving individuals, but I cannot explain away extraordinarily loving communities. Have you ever met an extraordinarily loving individual? They're amazing. I have a friend named Eric Larson. He goes to our church, and this is like the most extraordinarily loving. He's just like amazing. And when you see Eric, you know that a bear hug is imminent in your life. It's on the, it's on the way, right? He's just extraordinary, and many of you are like that. But the world, people can explain away extraordinarily loving individuals, but they cannot explain away a community where people love each other and maybe they have no other reason to love one another than the fact that the gospel has set in and just punctured their hearts and something supernatural is happening. Amazing. Do you know what? This is the wisdom of God. God decided that he would cause love to spread in our world through these communities where he poured out his love and and people learned how to love. It is the community of Jesus, this space where we receive love from God, where we learn what love means, where we practice love one to another. And ultimately, it's the community of Jesus where God shows love to the world and causes it to spread. Amazing. So actually, when we learn how to love each other, we are loving the world. Amen? Isn't that profound? That's where John's going today. Will you open your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 4? And today we're going to learn how. How does God do this? How does God create a community of love? What is God up to in our church? 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 21, he's going to show us the way. I'm going to put up for you three headings that you're going to see today as we read. I'm going to share these with you now because I want you to look for these. Here's the blueprint. This is God's blueprint for his church to create a community of love. First, God abides in us through his love. Then God perfects us through his love. You're going to see that. We'll talk about it. Interesting word. And finally, God ignites us. There's like this ignition that happens, this power that gets unleashed in the church. And when we receive it, it's so powerful that we cannot help but love one another. It's like when someone hits your knee with a hammer, you just respond with love. And we're going to see that this morning. Will you look for those concepts as I read to you 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13? Here's what John says. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I got that turned around. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Did you see the pattern there? Did you see it? God abides. There's this abiding love. God perfects. There's this perfecting love. And then God ignites us. And we love one another. And through that beautiful, powerful work, the love of God spreads in the world. And have you noticed that the hero of the whole thing is not us? It's God. Amen? God is always the hero of what's going on. His mission in the world. So we're going to unpack each of these abiding love, perfecting love, igniting love, or initiating love. I want you to see these, and I want us to understand them. God, he, John begins with abiding. Did you notice how often he repeats the word abide in the first four verses? You cannot help but miss it, because you're reading along every week. You're reading in preparation for Sunday, and you notice it, and you go, I bet he's going to talk about abiding, right? There it is. Verse 13, we abide in him, he abides in us. Verse 15, if you confess that Jesus is the Son, God abides in that person and he abides in God. Verse 16, God is love. If we abide in love, we abide in God and God abides in us. It's like John's favorite word. He uses it constantly. 24 times in this letter alone, 36 times in his gospel. The word abide can just mean the place where you live. It's where you dwell but when John uses this word, especially in the gospel, he uses the word to describe the way that the persons of the Trinity interact with each other in relationship. So it's, it's very significant. When John wants to begin to describe the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how the persons of the Trinity interact with one another in relationship. Every time he uses the word abide. So when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water in John chapter 1, the, the, John the Baptist bore witness saying, I'll put it on the screen, don't turn there. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. That's the word abide. John the Baptist said, the Spirit fell and indwelled Christ and stayed with Christ as his constant companion through his ministry, and there was this sense of the Spirit abiding in Christ, always with him. Amazing. When Philip said to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father, and Jesus was offended by this, and in John chapter 14, he said, have I not been with you? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells, that's the word abide. The Father abides in me and does his works. And then in John 15, when John says to the church, abide in me like a branch abides in the vine, later on in that passage, John 15, 10, he said, if you, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his Love. So there's something going on here with abiding. We're heading into the deep end. John is saying, I want you to think about the relationships within the triune God. And then John takes this astonishing, breathtaking step, and he says, then what God does is he invites his 
people, the church, up into the very same kind of relationship. The way that Christ relates to God and the Spirit and one to another, this mutual abiding, somehow there's room within the Creator God for the people of God whom He's chosen and saved to be invited up and to relate to God in the very same way. And we get invited in to abide in God. And not only that, God abides in us. Astounding. River West. Do you understand what a privilege it is to be a part of the church of the living God? God is abiding with us here. This is a high calling. This is the privilege of being a part of the church. Can I ask you a question? Because I've wondered this week. I've wondered, does the average Christian person see the church the same way that God sees the church? Do we see the church the way God sees our church? And what if we could be transported up into heaven and get inside the mind of God in a moment where he's conceiving of River West Church? Would we be changed by the way he sees what's happening in this moment? I think we would. Because God would say, that is my my dwelling place. I abide there when you gather. Astounding. A couple of years ago, I had an experience where God woke me up in the middle of the night. 3 a.m., I just woke up, and it was very clear it was the Lord who woke me. This does not happen to me, very rarely, but the moment I woke up, the Lord was giving me a word for our church. And I'm typically the guy who's a little bit skeptical when people say, the Lord's giving me a word, but I'm telling you, this was that moment. It was so clear. I was immediately awake. I he was communicating to me. I jumped out of bed. I went to my computer. I was like Jim Carrey in that movie where he's God, and he's answering the emails. I was like, drinking coffee. I was writing as fast as I can to put down this message that the Lord had given me for the church, which I shared the very next Sunday. And what happened when I woke up at 3 a.m. is the Lord gave me a verse, and he gave me a question for our church. The verse was 1 Timothy 3.15 where Paul describes the church and he says the church is the household of the living God. And the question was do you agree with me about my view of of your church? Do you agree? Do you understand what's happening here? This is not just a cavalier moment where we've gathered to sing some songs. God is here with us, abiding. This is his household. In the Old Testament, God dwelled in temples and tabernacles. That was the place where it was where the vertical and the horizontal meet, where heaven and earth collide, and God chose in his providence and his mercy to dwell there and and manifest his full glory. But now in the new covenant, in the age of the church, God no longer dwells in buildings, temples, or holy cities. God in his wisdom and providence has decided, I will dwell where? I will dwell in a people who've gathered in my name. What a privilege. There's absolutely no way for me to overstate how significant this moment is. We have come together and God is with us abiding. Amen? Talk about FOMO, fear of missing out. Okay, if you miss this, do you know what you're missing? 
I wonder how many Christian people agree with God about that. The fastest growing church in America is called Life.Church. They have 24 campuses in seven states. But the reason they're growing so fast is because they have an online platform where 70,000 people go to church every Sunday in the comfort of their own home, in their Snuggie, or whatever they're wearing in that moment, and they go to church, and it's right there on their computer screen. And they can tap into the entire worship service, and they can sing, and they can hear the message. And after the service, they can pray with someone in online chat rooms. I don't know how they do communion. I don't know if it comes out of the disk drive or something. But they're having this entire experience. And I don't doubt at all that people have significant spiritual insights. But you know what? There's something critical missing from that model. They are not experiencing the community where God abides. Because God in his wisdom decided, I will dwell with the people. I will dwell with the people. Have you ever walked into the sanctuary? I have, and you've walked and you have this sense, something's happening here. Like, whoa, it is on today. God's doing, God is with us. I have. We start worshiping and we realize we're not just singing songs. We're abiding in the love of God and God is abiding in us. Profound. When the, when the scriptures are read and someone is preaching, that, that is not a human thing. That is God speaking in that moment, abiding in his people through the wisdom of his word. I've had people come up and say, I swear, did you write that sermon for me? And you were even looking at me the entire time. Did you have my name like written across? I, that's never happened, all right? I have to look somewhere, okay? <laughs> That's the living God abiding in his church. And do you know what? He has a word for your life. And if he didn't, you wouldn't be here. God is with us. It's impossible to overstate how significant this moment is. We pray. When we pray together, we're in the presence of God himself. And it happens in a community. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I did not plan to say, but I really feel like I need to say this. Do you know a Christian person who has wandered away from a local church and stopped going? Can I very lovingly tell you that I think God is calling you to go after that person? You need to go after them. They are, they are separating themselves from the place on earth where God in his wisdom decided, I will abide there. You might be the person that God is calling to pursue them and say, please come back. You need to be here. You need to be here. Because what happens when we gather and we worship and we hear from God, God is with us and he begins to change us and he begins to perfect us in love. That's where John goes next. Will you look at it with me, verse 17? John says, By this is love perfected. By what? By what is love perfected? It's back in verse 16, so you can just look at it. This is how we get perfected in love. It's as we abide in God and his love and he abides in us. And what happens in that moment is that 
God does this work of perfecting. The word perfection does not mean what we typically think it means where we become perfect. It means completion. It's the Greek word telos, which just means the end goal. God is accomplishing his goal, and his goal is to perfect us in love. And when we gather, God does that. And what does that perfecting work result in? Right there in verse 17, by this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. As God abides in us and his love abides in us, the perfecting work is that we, now don't necessarily think you individually, although it is you individually, but again, John's talking about the gathered community where God dwells, we become perfected, and the result of that perfection is that we begin to experience a confidence about a future day when we'll stand before Jesus and we'll give an account. That day is coming. And John says, I just want to take you on a a journey into the future and remind you what it will be like to stand before Jesus in that day. And the, the desire of God through his perfecting love is that there would be absolute confidence about what will happen to us in that day. And we can live right now in this life with that confidence every time we're together. Amazing. And then what John says is the opposite of confidence is fear. Verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Okay, so I think this is what's happening. I think what John is saying is that love and fear cannot go together when it comes to God. They're like oil and water. They cannot cohabitate. In fact, what John is saying is every time divine love enters the room, immediately fear flees. That's how powerful God's love is. It just, it got, it's, it's like this source of incredible power that the second it enters your life as you gather in Christian community, all fear flees away. I think that's what John means when he says perfect love casts out fear. Did you see that word? Casts out. That is a very aggressive word. It, it describes something being expelled from your life, throwing something out. There's no room for this. I always think of in the movies or in the commercials that scene when the guy comes home and his girlfriend has thrown all of his stuff out the window onto the grass, right? Okay, that's the image, just stuff being cast out. And it's always a Levi's commercial. And the guy's out there and he has nothing but his underwear on and all of his possessions are out there and he goes for the Levi's, right? Which is probably why she threw him out. But anyway, okay, it's a silly analogy, but think about this for just a minute. God has no room in the church for fear because fear has to do with punishment. And so God says, I'm casting that out. There's no room for that. Let me say two things about this that I think are important. The first is this. Fear could be an evidence 
that something is off in my relationship with God. So if I'm, I'm experiencing fear as it relates to punishment, that is an evidence that something's wrong, something is broken, something's dysfunctional. And we kind of get this, like uh, fear is often a result of dysfunction even just in our human relationships. Have you ever been in a work environment where everyone's afraid? Do you know that environment? People are, people are like cowering and they're, if they, they know if I make one error, the upper, the, the, the upper ups, I'm gone. They will just ax me. What a horribly dysfunctional environment to work in, right? But then I think, okay, this is a little bit more sad, but then I think, what about children who live in fear in their home of mom, mom or dad? I mean, just that, there's something so wrong about that. So I just imagine like a kid cowering, like trying to get to their bedroom as fast as possible because they, they're f- afraid of mom or dad. What a dysfunctional place to be. And then God says, yeah, and it's, there's no place for fear in your relationship with me either. Fear is about punishment. If, I, if I'm afraid of punishment, it means I'm missing something critical in my understanding of the gospel because John's whole point throughout this whole letter is that God sent his one and only son into the world to pay for human sin, to be the propitiation for my sins it doesn't mean that there is no punishment. It actually means there is punishment for sin and God in his love and his mercy poured out my punishment on Christ who took it away. And I now stand before God with no fear. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's no room for fear. And so God begins to push it out. How about you? Have you been carrying fear You're here because God wants, in the context of community, to cast that out of your life so that you can stand today as we worship before God with an open heart and total confidence. What a gift that would be. But there's one thing else I'll say about fear. Fear is actually often the root of my failure to love like God. So I think what John's going to do next is he's actually going to connect fear and love. And he's going to say, a lot of times the reason why I don't love well, there's something underneath that, and it's actually fear. Counselors talk about secondary and primary emotions. So professional counselors, and they'll say there's there's two, there's, there's the secondary stuff that we do, but, all, but those secondary emotions, a lot of times they're like anger and hatred and other things, but all, always underneath that is another emotion that's the primary emotion, and the number one primary emotion is fear. I am angry because I'm afraid of something. I'm afraid of losing something or I'm afraid of my reputation being tarnished, or I'm afraid of not having control, and so my response comes out looking like anger or hatred. We see this all the time in our world. Fear is the cause of so much hatred in our world. And I don't have to look in the world. All I have to do is look inside of my own life at the times where I've experienced 
anger, and it's always motivated by fear. And John simply says, God wants to push that out with his love. And as he does, we become lovers. We become like God. That's what John says last. We look at it, verse 19, this initiating love, this igniting love. He says, we love. Why do we love? Why do you ever love someone in the body of Christ? Why do you love someone in your community group? Why do you love that person across the room that you, ha- you have nothing else in common with? Why do you love family or even in your own family, your spouse, your children? Why do we love? We always love as a response to the love of God towards us. He's the first lover, and we just love as a reaction to his love. We love because he first loved us. And this is why I think what John is going to do next is John is going to say it would be impossible for a community that is receiving the love of God to then be a community that does not love each other. That is a logical impossibility. You can't drive a wedge between the love of God for us and our love for one another. It's not possible. That's what John says, verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I did it again. Why do I keep doing that? Um, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. All John is saying there is he's saying, you cannot drive a wedge between these two. They're married, receiving love from God and becoming a person of love towards brothers and sisters. They're eternally wedded. Amazing. Now, I think that John had in mind, when he was writing this letter, I think that he had in mind a moment in his relationship with Jesus that impacted him deeply. And he was thinking of that moment throughout the entire process of writing 1 John. And I want to end by taking you to that moment in the gospel, and it'll help us go to communion. So will you leave 1 John and go to the gospel of John? Chapter 13 is where we're going to go. Let me hear the pages a-rustling, all right? John 13, it's a famous moment. You know the moment well. You're familiar with it. It's the moment when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. But it's not just what he did in that moment. It's something he said after he washed their feet that stuck with John and changed John. John 13, verse 34. I'm going to tell you what Jesus said, and then I'm going to go back and tell you what Jesus had done and why it matters. He said in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Look at this. This is where we started today. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How does the world come to know that God is real, that God is loving? They see love in a community where people are loving each other with Jesus as their example. 
And what did Jesus do to model love? He got up from the table. You know the story. He got up from the table. He took a cloak. He wrapped it around his waist. He tied it. He went to each of the disciples, and he did something scandalous. He took the lowest place in society. He got down on his knees in front of each friend, and he started to wash their feet, and they did not like it, okay? And neither would I, and neither would you. Don't be over-spiritual on me right now. You would not like this. Do you remember what Peter said in that moment? Peter basically said, this is not happening. He said, there's no way. Lord, how, are, how is it possible that in the economy of things, you are about to wash my feet? And what Jesus said to him was extremely profound. He said, Peter, if you don't let me do this, you can't have a relationship with me. I think what Jesus was saying was, if you don't let me wash your feet, how are you going to let me die for your sins? If I can't even wash your feet, Peter, how can I wash your soul? I'm trying to show you what love looks like. And in just about 24 hours, I will give you the ultimate picture of love when you see me suffering in your place on a cross. And the only way that you can be in a relationship with me is if you let me serve you. And then Jesus got up from the table and he said, now begin to love one another the way that I have loved you. And it's so beautiful. And you know what, River West, every time we gather, we learn that, we remind ourselves of that, we worship, we grow, we practice, and then God uses our church to put love on display. But can I close with one last suggestion? What would it be like if every time you came to church, in your mind, you were thinking, God is gonna abide with us today. How would it change what happens here? You got out of your car and you started walking down that abnormally long sidewalk. Why did they design that? I don't know. I have a feeling to give you time to make sure that you agree with God about what's about to happen because we're living in a culture where people are so cavalier about the church and God is saying, do you know what's about to happen? I am gonna dwell with you. And we don't think that, but we should. And as we walk down that path, our heart should begin to explode with expectation. God is going to meet us today, and we will be changed. And it only happens in the gathered community of Christ. Profound. Please, let's pray for that. Let's come every Sunday expecting God to pour out his love on us. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray about that, and we're going to go to the Lord's table together. Father, we want to thank you for the incredible privilege it is to be in your presence in this moment. To sit under your word that you inspired. To be reminded of how much you've loved us. To pray and to worship, to go to the table, to remember the gospel. 
and to know all along, whether we're aware of it or not, you're actually doing a perfecting work in our community, and we are honored, God. Change us. Raise our expectations. Open our eyes that we would see your church the way you see it. Open our eyes that we would see one another the way you see us, family, brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to learn how to love each other, and we want that love to spread in contagious ways in our world. We do love people outside of our church, God. We love them desperately, and we want them to know you. Remind us that it's in here that we cultivate that most. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said Amen.